Well, welcome. Glad that you're here with us. If you're in the auditorium, if you, I think our audience watching online is going to be huge today. So glad that you're joining us if you're home with a cup of coffee right now or wherever you are. Well, it's, we're, uh, I hope that you will be here next weekend, you know, as we celebrate the, and, and express our gratitude to John and Phyllis for the 23 years of leadership that they've provided for our church. And so I just hope that you'll make it a priority to be here uh, next weekend. Well, we're starting a new series called Passages, A Voyage Through the Book of Matthew. And how many of you have ever been on some kind of a voyage, been on a boat, cruise ship, military ship, uh, down a river on a kayak, a canoe, a whitewater raft, inner tube, water wings in a swimming pool, some kind, any kind of voyage? Well, a group of four veterans, including two from Colorado, just completed this amazing voyage just this past February 5th. It was a challenging and unique voyage. Take a look. Cheers echoed at the shore of Antigua. As the first all-veteran team of Americans successfully rowed across the Atlantic Ocean. After 54 days, nine hours, and three minutes, the team of four arrived in Antigua to a swarm of supporters and loved ones. After nearly two months at sea, a little wobbly right now, but it feels great. The stories these vets now share, most can only imagine. I got to swim with a pack of bottlenose dolphins. We had squid jumping into the boat. We had whales up under us for about three days, just followed us. That was really cool. So many stories that just happen on a daily basis for us. It's life changing. The vets, including two Coloradans, say their steering failed and their battery died, yet they overcame. They hope their story will encourage others soldiers to do the same. We went over pretty much every type of catastrophic failure that could hit us, hit us, and we overcame it. Sometimes you find yourself in, in the middle of nowhere, and sometimes in the middle of nowhere you find yourself. At least one teammate had a simple question as big as the ocean. Who wants to go do it again? Who wants to go on that voyage? Man, what a voyage, huh? Well, I want to draw some parallels between that voyage and the one we're going to go on from now until Easter. Those guys had a, a life-giving purpose to save the lives of veterans. And we have a life-giving purpose for this voyage we're going on. We can, we can choose life in dozens of ways every single day. They had a map. We have a map. It's called the book of Matthew. And we're going to be looking at passages that will guide us in our lives through this uh, next 40 days through, through Easter. They had a guidance system. Our guidance system is the Holy Spirit. That's our guidance system. Uh, they had a crew. Uh, some people might attempt that alone. Don't attempt life alone. And as Isaac mentioned, we hope that you will uh, get a little crew together and do this voyage, do those daily, daily readings, do the studies, the weekly studies and the discussions. Another thing they had is they had to decide whether to go or not to go. And so we're inviting you to decide. Come along on this voyage with us. And what happened on that trip, those four, they talked about life transformation. Well, what, what causes transformation? Well, doing it together, storms, challenges, high points, low points, all of it. And then in between now and Easter, uh, we're going to face storms. Uh, they had catastrophic failures of every kind. There's probably going to be failures that happen between now and Easter. But they had an amazing experience together, an amazing encounter. Swimming with dolphins, squids jumping in the boat, 
Three days of whales following you. That, that could be cool or dangerous. Yeah, it's like, and so we hope. And that one guy said this. He said, sometimes in the middle of nowhere, you find yourself. And sometimes you find yourself in the middle of nowhere. And so the next 40 days, we hope that you'll sign on. You'll decide, you know what? I'm gonna go on this journey together and I wanna meet God in some ways that, that I don't even know about yet. So are you in? Will you go on this voyage with us?
Band, thank you. We live all of our lives in response to these two big questions. You can write them down in your program notes if you want to. Here they are. What is the good life? And what is a good person? Every human being, community, church, organization, state, country, has a picture of the good life above the mantle on, in their mind. And we try to aspire and live into whatever that picture is. Every international summit, political hot potato, every law that's passed, class taught, dollar and spent, every relationship, every religion addresses these two questions. And the challenge comes because there's huge disagreement about the answers. Does a good life mean that North Korea has or doesn't have nuclear weapons? Does a good life mean that we do or don't have a wall? Will you have more of the good life if you marry that person instead of that person, take that job instead of that job, get a college education or not? Does being a good person mean I just do whatever I want with whomever I want, whenever I want? Does being a good person mean I have this list of things that I do and the list of things that I don't do? And if that's the case, then whose list? Mine, yours, our parents, our countries, our cultures, whose list? One of the most important questions to ask when answering those questions is, says who? Says who? Who has the vision, the integrity, the authority to answer the two big questions? A sister will say to her brother, do not eat those cookies. And with a big bite of chocolate chip cookie in his mouth, he'll say, says who? Says who? Thankfully, God didn't create us and say, just figure it out for yourselves. No, the reason Jesus became a human being was to answer those questions for us. And every encounter he had, every word he taught, aligned, helps us align our lives with the good life and the good person. I mean, who, who better to answer those questions for us than the one who made us? Jesus was a genius. He was. I mean, who do you think thought up nuclear physics? Who do you think created your eye, your brain? And day after day, Jesus said to people, follow me, follow me. And Jesus is the only person in human history who every night he could lay his head on a pillow and say, 
I did everything right today. Wouldn't you like to do that one day in all of your life, to be able to do that and say that? And when Jesus came to town, he was the talk of the town. He fed people, healed people, touched people in ways that nobody had or could. And he taught. And his teaching was fresh and new and life-giving. It had the clout and the ring of truth and authority to it. And the book of Matthew contains more of Jesus' teaching than any of the other three biographies. And there are five big blocks of teaching in the book of Matthew. And the first one is chapters five through seven, and it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And it contains an amazing amount of wisdom and fresh life-giving information on simply what's the good life and how to be a good person. I thought, if Jesus had done a TED Talk of the Sermon on the Mount, how many views would he have by now? Billions, billions of views because it's the most important teaching our world has ever had. Do you know what the next, the number one TED Talk now is? How many views? Right around 43 million. So you think, Jesus compared to that? Hands down. He, he addresses issues that we face in our lives. You ever get angry? Ever want something that someone else has? You wonder if my job is gonna make a difference for good? What's my attitude towards the world in general? And what about the disparity between the poor and the rich? How do I respond when people get mad at me and criticize us? How do I, and hurt us, how do I respond when I hurt and criticize another person? What does sexual integrity look like? How about divorce? What are my attitudes toward money? How do I have a relationship with God? How do I talk with him? All of that teaching is included in the Sermon on the Mount. And the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, it's like Jesus took all of this and condensed it down into eight verses, which are, we're, we're gonna look at today. We call them the Beatitudes. I'm gonna read them. They're Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the Beatitudes are not good advice. They're good news. You see, it's not a checklist of eight pre-qualifications that I must do before I get in on the good life. And when we get them checked off, then we get in. It's not that. If we treat the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount like that, it's just gonna be pretty poison. It'll crush us. It's pretty, but it's deadly. And it's not a description of eight different kinds of people. Jesus isn't saying there's a whole group of people over here who are meek. There's a group of people over here who are mourning. There's a group of people over here who are pure in heart. Jesus is saying, no, this is a composite list. It's a description of the good life and the good person. And there are eight qualities that we can grow and thrive in each of us. When I was doing my study, as I look at through this list, I thought, wow, some of these ideas are exact opposite of the way we're taught often in our own culture. We're often uncomfortable with people who mourn. We don't know how to comfort them. And so we bring a cliche and a casserole. That's what we do. We certainly don't believe that the meek will inherit the earth. No, it's the bold, the aggressive, the hard-charging. Those people are the ones who are gonna get the earth. And the pure in heart, come on. 
How ridiculous. How pure is your heart? I've had moments of purity, uh, minutes maybe, milliseconds, um, but seriously, a life of complete integrity, which is what that means. And if I have to manufacture it within myself, I, I humbly submit, I didn't, we, we can't do it. We can't. We just will get off the boat on this voyage right now. Someone called the Beatitudes a safe habitat for the heart. And we look at this list and our hearts long for this kind of life. We want to be comforted when we mourn. We long to be filled, to be satisfied. We long to see God. That's why you're here. We want mercy. We want grace, especially when, when we do something wrong. This guy was driving along one evening and he got pulled over by the cops. He was only doing seven miles an hour over the speed limit, and so he pleads with the cop, how about a little mercy? How about a little grace? The cop just writes the ticket, hands it through the window. Well, the next day, there's a softball game that the cop is playing in, and when he walks up to bat, who's umping but the guy he pulled over and given the ticket to the day before? And he looks at him and goes, hey, hey, no hard feelings about yesterday. How about a little grace? How about a little mercy? The umpire just looks at him and says, you better swing at every pitch. <laughs> you see, when we mess up, we want mercy and grace. When somebody else messes up, we want justice for them. Notice that all eight of these beatitudes are bookmarked by the first phrase, kingdom of heaven. When you see this phrase in Matthew, which he uses 32 times, we're gonna see it again in our voyage. Think this, kingdom of heaven equals the good life. Because that's what Jesus is talking about. When we all have a kingdom, you have one, I have one. The kingdom, my kingdom, is the range of my effective will. Two kids get in the back seat of a car. The brother draws a line down the middle of the seat and says to his sister, this is my kingdom. Don't you get into my kingdom. And what's the first thing she does? She tries to expand her kingdom into his, and a fight ensues. This often happens. Male animals mark their territory, saying, this is my kingdom. If you're male, I'll fight you for it. If you're female, y'all are welcome anytime. <laughs> and in any kingdom, there are insiders and outsiders. And one of the reasons Jesus was so wildly popular is because he was so radically inclusive of the people who thought they were somehow disqualified and always on the outside looking in. See, the religious community had defined the boundaries. If you do these things and don't do these things, and if you're the right race, then you can get in. They had a phrase for all they excluded. They called them tax, they called them tax collectors and sinners. And I'm gonna walk us through the first four of these Beatitudes because they're the key that unlocks the rest of the good life. And the very first one is the front gate to the kingdom, to the good life, to the God life. And it's this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the word blessed is really a rich word. Sometimes it's translated happy or filled with joy, which might lead us to believe that it's merely a feeling. But to be blessed is a state of being. To be blessed is to have the favor. This last week, with a tear in his eye, Rocky's third baseman, Nolan Arenado, talked about how blessed he was when he signed that $260 million deal. 
he entered a $260 million kingdom. Being blessed is our standing or status before God. And to be poor in spirit means to look inside and understand my own spiritual poverty. Blessed are the spiritually bankrupt, the deprived, the deficient, the spiritual beggars. Jesus is surrounded by people when he said this that had nothing to suggest that the spirit of God was anyway moving in their lives. No one had asked them to lead a small group or pray, lead anything. They would be the last people to say that they had any claim on God or that they were in any way religious. And it's many of these people that, come, that find Jesus so welcoming and inclusive. A woman who's, who'd been struggling with bleeding for all, all of her life and thought that somehow she had fallen outside of the, of the favor of God and she just reached out one day and touched the robe of Jesus, all the courage she had, and it was enough. And Jesus said, you belong. And this little guy called Zacchaeus, who was always on the outside, always pushed aside, climbed up in a tree one day when Jesus came by just so he could catch a glimpse of him. And Jesus says, hey, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. You can get in the kingdom. And lepers in that, in that culture would have to walk down the street and say, unclean, I'm dirty, don't anybody come near. Can you imagine what that would do to your soul? And Jesus walks right in there and he touches that leper and says, you can belong. The kingdom of heaven is yours. Brendan Manning describes spiritual poverty this way in the introduction to his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel. He says, this book is not for the super spiritual. It's not for the Christians who have made John Wayne and not Jesus their hero. It's not for hallelujah Christians who live only on the mountaintop and have never visited the valley of desolation. It's not for the tearless or the fearless. It's not for legalists who would rather surrender control of their souls than run the risk of living in union with Jesus. It's for the bedraggled, beat up, burned out. It's for the sorely burdened who are shifting the heavy suitcase from one hand to another. It's for the wobbly need who know they don't have it together and are too proud to accept the handout of amazing grace. It's for the poor, weak, sinful people with hereditary faults and limited talents. It's for the bent and bruised who feel that their lives are a grave disappointment to God. It's for smart people who know they're stupid and honest disciples who admit they are scalawags. It is a book I wrote for myself and anyone who has grown weary and discouraged along the way. Understanding and admitting my spiritual poverty, my absolute need for God, Jesus says, that's the way we gain access to the good life. I come to God completely empty-handed and just simply say to God, I need you. Which is far different than saying to God, I need your help. It's saying, I need you. I want you to be the best treasure of my heart. And our ego will resist this. The human ego has marked its territory. I want to be in charge. I want to call the shots. I want to have the power. It's my kingdom come. My will be done on earth. The human ego is one of the most powerful forces on the planet. Brene Brown writes this about the ego. Ego is a willing conspirator when it comes to locking away the heart. I love this next phrase. She says, I think of my ego as my inner hustler. It's that voice in my head that drives pretending, performing, pleasing, and perfecting. The ego loves gold stars and craves acceptance and approval. It, has not, it is not interested in wholeheartedness, just self-protection and admiration. But to have God in our lives is the most freeing 
experience will ever have. I mean, being the God of my own little life, being the God of my own kingdom, no matter how big it is, I don't know about you, but it's exhausting. It's exhausting and wearying and guilt-producing. Do you ever get tired of feeling like you have to make it happen, answer all the questions, fix everything, be in charge of everything, even if it's just everything in my own little kingdom? Coming to Jesus is one big yes and a lot of little uh uh-huhs. The one big yes is saying to Jesus, I don't know all about you, but I know a lot about me, and I need you. I want you to lead my life. I want you to guide my life. I want you to adopt your wisdom for my life. I want you to be with me. That's the one big yes. And I said that big yes a number of years ago. But every day, every week, there are things that happen where I have to go, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. I have to re-understand my own sense of spiritual poverty and the limit of my own energy and power. We have to do this every day. I have fears. I worry. I fear not being enough. I fear not having answers to people's questions. I fear not being able to come through. And when I come to God with a renewed sense of my spiritual poverty, he says, why does that surprise you, Dennis? I created you to be dependent on me. And for you to need me, God, that's the way I made you. He says, that's the way I made you. That's my way. That's the way I made you. That's why Jesus said, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my leadership on your life. It's an, he says, it's an easy leadership. It's an easy way. I'll give you rest. And when we do that, when we come to grips, when we say big yes, la 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 hans, to our own spiritual poverty, the next beatitude opens up for us. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. To mourn is to be sad in our soul. And mourning is a natural reaction to the lack or the loss of something. And in this context, the first thing to mourn is our own spiritual poverty. We mourn our sin. We don't do it right all the time. And Jesus says that to be sad about our spiritual condition is okay. God says, I didn't design you to live independently from me. And while we're mourning our spiritual poverty in the presence of God, he comes into that place of grief and says, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you in your heart. You're not alone. He says, I'll put my spirit in you. I'll bring the love and life and hope and infuse your spirit with the Holy Spirit. God's comfort starts there. And whenever we suffer from a broken heart, when we mourn other losses in our lives, when we're so desperately sad because of a divorce or a death or the loss of a career or a friend or a business or the loss of our health in some way, when we mourn over a failure or a disappointment, if we or someone we love loses the ability to remember, the ability to walk, the ability to speak, the ability to control their body, the ability to control their outbursts. We mourn. Brokenhearted people mourn. And Jesus says, when you do, I'll be with you. I will bring comfort. A number of years ago, we had a couple, uh, Dan and Pam were their names, are their names. 
And uh, Pam uh, got cancer, and at the age of 38, she died. And I uh, remember getting the phone call from Dan before she died saying, hey, if you want to see Pam, you better come. So we drove, my wife and I drove to the hospital. We walked into the room, and maybe you've been in this place where a person is clearly uh, soon to be gone from this world. And they're just laying there, they're breathing. Pam has, was bald and had done the whole chemo thing, and it hadn't really worked. And, and she was heavily sedated, and Dan sat on one side of her bed, and Barbara and I sat on the other, and we had a, we, we just talked. Lights were on, and there was just a quiet, and that was a really holy moment, and Pam was just, just out of it. And at one point, I remember looking across the bed at Dan, and I said, where do you find hope in all of this? And, and Pam responded. She said, my, she kind of leans up in that bed and she goes, my hope is Jesus. And we all leaned closer and we said, what? What did you say? And she said again, my hope is Jesus. And we discovered later that those are the last words that she spoke in her life. As I thought about that story, I thought, yeah, blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. When Jesus is in that place of mourning with us, it brings comfort. It does. And when we come to Jesus and admit our spiritual poverty, and when we mourn that, the next blessing also makes sense. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And to be meek means to be gentle, courteous, patient, considerate of others. It's not timidity, insecurity, or indecisiveness. Being meek is having a true picture of who we are and who others are, and then treat ourselves and them accordingly. And on the surface, this is another one of those beatitudes that just seems ridiculous. In our culture, the meek get stepped on. They get pushed aside. They get left out. They get marginalized. It's the bold, the powerful, the aggressive that are going to inherit the earth. But when I look at those kinds of people and that kind of use of power, I ask, is that really the kind of earth we want? And is that the kind of earth I want to inherit and live in with them? One of the benefits of spiritual meekness is contentment. With the ego pushed aside, the drive for more, more, more at any cost goes away. Spiritual mentor Dallas Willard says that people in general and particularly leaders take on God's projects and make them ours. He writes, the great temptation is to try to make it happen, whatever it is. And then he says, we don't make it happen. We turn it loose. And he uses the illustration of bowling. You know how to bowl, right? You've, you've probably done this. You let go, you release it. And if it's not going the way you want it to go, what do you do? You go, ooh, no, ooh, I want it to go. Like that's gonna help. <laughs> Dallas writes, we do our best, but we don't trust our best. When you start trusting your best, you think the solution, if it doesn't go well, is to work harder. Meek people do their best and leave the rest to God. And here's the best part about the inheritance thing, inheriting the earth. Right now, we just get a taste. This is the appetizer. Jesus says that my family is gonna inherit an unbelievable new earth. One day, Jesus is gonna return. He's gonna put everything right once and for all. 
He's gonna recreate this place. And he says, my family, anybody who wants to get in can. You can live on and on forever with me. Now there is an inheritance worth having. Remember, this life is just the appetizer. It's the down payment. The real deal is coming. And meekness doesn't make us complacent. The next beatitude gets spiritual, get just pumps spiritual jet fuel into our lives because it says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. This is a person with a burning passion to see things put right, to see ourselves put right, to see our families and our schools and our communities and our country and our world put right once and for all because we all know the reality. There's a gap between the way things are and we know the way things ought to be. Look at your own life. Isn't there a gap between the way you are and the way you want to be and the way you know you can be? There's a gap. And when we long for that, when we mourn that, when we strive for that, Jesus says, that's a good thing. The longing is a good thing. I, I want the satisfaction. Jesus is actually saying the longing is a good thing. The longing, the hunger, the thirst for that is such a good thing. I had a professor who said this, God is easy to please, but hard to satisfy. Parents, your parent, you understand this, right? We are easy to please, but we're hard to satisfy because we understand that this child, this grandchild has this amazing potential. And while we're pleased, it's like there's a gap. We long, long for them to be better. And people who understand and who are in the family of God and understand these things, we look in our community and we know that there is a gap between the way things are and the way things ought to be. And when we watch the news, or we hear stories locally or read the newspaper or go online and read stories. And sometimes the gap is just so obvious. Something happens to a kid or somebody kills somebody in their family. Or, and there's a part of our spirit that just goes, it shouldn't be that way. Understand the gap. One person called it the holy discontent. That longing, the good thing. And when we begin to get these things aligned in our lives, understand our spiritual poverty, we mourn our own sense of loss, we, we get some comfort from Jesus, we, we become meek in our approach. We treat people the way people ought to be treated, including ourselves. And then the next four of these beatitudes just begin to open up. We have access to integrity. Our life becomes, we become, take on the vocation of peacemaking helping reconciling people and systems and cultures and businesses together. And Jesus says there's a purity of heart, which means integrity will open up to us. And he says, this is how it is in a good life. And this is how it is to be a good person. And I'm not gonna take you into the next four. We need another 30 minutes. And I know you wanna have lunch here or brunch here in a second. But your desire for that that's why you're here. That's why you're watching right now, is in you, you have a longing for hunger. You're hungering for the kind of right life, the right, the good life, to be a good person. And I hope you're gonna stay on this journey with us, that you participate in every part of it, because this is the good life. And I know you wanna be a good person. And one of the things I appreciate so much about our church is that we have a hunger and a thirst to put things right in our community. 
and in our world. When I think of our partnership with Edmondson and Lago Vista and I think of Project 1 that's coming up in May and Project 12 that happened yesterday and as I think of our Northern Colorado AIDS Project involvement, our giving tree, I think of all the things that we do. It's because we know that there's something we can do to put things right and to, to, to walk into that gap. And when we do that, guess what's gonna happen? Our hunger and thirst is gonna increase. And Jesus says, that is a good thing. That is the good life. And that's what good people do. And I want us to end our time today by reading these Beatitudes together from a different translation, from Eugene Peterson's translation called The Message. And so would you stand with me? And we're gonna, they're gonna be on the screen. And let's just read these together and then I'll pray. Here we go. We're blessed when we're at the end of our rope. With less of us, there is more of God and his rule. We're blessed when we feel we've lost what is most dear to us. Only then can we be embraced by the one most dear to us. We're blessed when we're content with just who we are. No more, no less. That's the moment we find ourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. We're blessed when we've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink in the best meal we'll ever eat. We're blessed when we care. At the moment of being careful, we find ourselves cared for. We're blessed when we get our inside world, our mind and heart put right. Then we can see God in the outside world. We're blessed when we can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when we discover who we really are and our place in God's family. We're blessed when our commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives us even deeper into God's kingdom. Amen. Let's pray. And so God, I pray that your spirit would infuse all of us once again and that our hunger and thirst for the good life would give us confidence to find it for ourselves and invite others to do it the same. In your name, amen. amen. Well, thanks for uh, being here today. A couple of reminders before you leave. If you need prayer for anything, you know, there'll be a prayer team member up here along the stage. And if you need prayer, just don't, don't hesitate to ask. And uh, if you want to start one of those small groups, the videos are up already for week one. And we'll see you Wednesday night, 6.30 for the Ash Wednesday service. Have a good week. <laughs>